Well, Peter, it's really great to see you. I haven't been a chance to visit since early 2020, and you introduced me to Topo Chico um, as a great way to get um, carbonated water. Are you still into those? Very much so, yeah. Although I I, I have a different drink today because, uh, well, I don't know why. I, I just I grab for different drinks. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's kind of amazing, uh, distinct from the rest of the waters, uh, fizzy waters. At any rate, um, since that time, that uh, memorable visit we had, you published an incredible book, Outlive, and I think it sold more than a million, well over a million copies, which is amazing. So congratulations. It's really Thank you a, so much. Great book, and you may have read my review, um, which I really thought uh, it offers just a great information resource and must have taken so many years to put it all together. <laughs> yeah, I think it probably took seven years in total. Well, I think it was well worth it. And I think it's helping a lot of people. And in fact, um, I first became aware of it just because these patients were coming into me and saying, well, that's not what Dr. Atiyah says, or what do you think of Dr. Atiyah's? Um, so that's prompted me to, you know, give it a really close read. And, you know, I learned a lot uh, from all your work. Um, I thought what we'd start off with, you know, I think you framed it really well with this medicine, you know, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and the shift to the right. So maybe you could explain what you the concept on that. Sure. Um, so, you know, Medicine 1.0 is uh, kind of a placeholder for a time before there really was medicine, or at least before there was sort of a scientific method and an understanding of, of science and the, and the natural world around us. But of course, from a timescale perspective, it's what dominated all of our civilization. So, you know, humans have been around for 250,000 years. And until very, very, very recently on that timescale, we we didn't really have the tools intellectually to understand science. So we couldn't understand cause and effect. We didn't have a scientific method, let alone uh, a capacity to do experiments. And so most of what we did as far as medicine was, you know, based on things that we look back at today and think are completely ridiculous, sort of, you know, illness was brought on by the gods or bad humors or things like that. And um, really, then, when we start to think about medicine in the way we think about it today, we're really thinking about medicine 2.0. And this is something that was obviously uh, a many, many year transition. Technically, I would argue it took place over hundreds of years, beginning with Francis Bacon in the late 17th century, or the mid 17th century, but really accelerating in the latter part of the 19th century with uh, germ theory. So we can think about Lister, Semmelweis, I, I wrote a little bit about them. And, um, and ultimately, really a more concrete set of tools, including physical tools, such as the light microscope. Sid Mukherjee writes very elegantly about the importance of the light microscope in the understanding of the cell. And of course, a big part of understanding the cell was understanding bacteria, their role in disease. And then we have the advent of antimicrobial agents. So it's this sort of collective set of tools that allow us to basically double without exaggeration human lifespan in the in the in a matter of three generations so this is kind of a remarkable trajectory i think it would be surprising for most people to learn however that in this doubling of human lifespan um about well, I would say virtually all of it has come through the reduction of and or elimination of infectious diseases and communicable diseases. And 
none of that has really come or very little of that has come by addressing chronic diseases. And so as we've now lived longer by, you know, not dying due to, you know, the sort of usual infant mortality and infectious disease route, um, we're instead dying of these chronic diseases. And I think medicine 2.0 has been largely unsuccessful in that arena with perhaps one exception, and that exception is vaccination. So vac vaccination is in some ways a medicine 3.0 tool because it's a tool of prevention, meaning you treat before a person is sick. Um, whereas most of the success of medicine 2.0 is treat once the patient is ill. Mm -hmm. And that tool doesn't work for cancer, for dementia, uh, and for atherosclerosis. For, for those diseases, you actually have to treat, if you will, long before the patient is sick to prevent or at least delay the onset of. So in some ways, that is one of the most important pillars of medicine 3.0. Um, there, are, there are several others. So, so another very important pillar of it is an equal, if not greater focus on health span over lifespan, where the where the description and definition of health span are much more rigorous. So, you know, the the medicine 2.0 definition of health span is the period of time in which you are free of disability and disease. I kind of reject that definition is not very helpful um, because I'm as free of disability and disease today at 50 as I was when I was 20. I'm clearly not in as good a shape. I'm not as strong. I'm not as cardiorespiratory fit. I'm not as cognitively sharp. So my health span has already declined. But by focusing on metrics of health span in a very detailed way, we're going to get a lot of lifespan benefits uh, for free. And then there's the component of personalizing medicine. So um, again, it's it's a it's a term that that is rather glib, but it is kind of true, right? And so, you know, we think of evidence-based medicine as the foundation of medicine 2.0. And, and I think that evidence-informed medicine needs to be the, the pinnacle or the pillar of medicine 3.0 for reasons I'm sure we'll discuss. Yeah, so I buy into the medicine 3.0 concept because, you know, we've never fulfilled the fantasy or dream of prevention, really, as you get to. And the four horsemen that you laid out so well, you know, cancer, neurodegenerative disease, cardiovascular, and metabolic uh, dysfunction, um, all play into that, that we could actually prevent these. One of the questions on that was, you shifted to the right, better health span, but do, do you then fall off the cliff? That is, you have this great health span and you don't have the chronic disease, or do you wind up just basically delaying the chronicity? What What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, I, I think what happens if is we want to model ourselves after the centenarians. So centenarians on average are living two decades, if not a little bit more than the, than the average person. So slightly more than two decades beyond the average person. And interestingly, um, they kind of die of the same diseases as the rest of us do. They just have a much more compressed period of morbidity. Um, and they have this phase shift in time for the first brush with disease X. So they're, you know, they're going to die pretty quickly of cancer when cancer sets in. They just get cancer 20 years later on average. Their first brush with cardiovascular disease is also 20 to 25 years later. So if you think about cardiovascular disease in non-centenarians, 50% um, of men, as you probably know, and maybe the audience doesn't, but 50% of men who are going to have a major adverse cardiac event will have it before the age of 65. 
and 33% of women who will have a major adverse cardiac event in their life will have so before the age of 65. When we're talking about centenarians, they're into their 80s and 90s when they're having their first major adverse cardiac event. And so um, in an ideal world, which is a theoretical world, you would square the longevity curve, right? You would have perfection and optimization of health span until you are pick your age, you might say 90, 100, and then you, you know, you die in your sleep sort of thing, or you, you know, you, you, you die while running around the track, having a heart attack or something to that effect. Um, the, the truth of it is when I look at, and I'm sure you've seen so many examples of this in your practice, when I look at the people who I would personally most want to emulate, these are people who, you know, succumbed to a disease, whether it be cancer, heart disease, or otherwise, um, and, and, and for which the disease took place and they were gone within six months. You know, they had, they sort of, you know, they were in their nineties and they were functioning at an exceptionally high level, exercising, playing with great grandkids, traveling, doing all of these things. And, you know, then they were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. They elected not to undergo heroic surgery. They had a G-tube placed and, you know, four months later they passed away. Um, and we, I, I think we look at that and we say, boy, that's a much better outcome than spending you know, 15 years in a gradual state of decline from the age of 65 to 80, which is the more common finding. Yeah, I think that is a model that hopefully will be further um, proven, because I think, as you say, that would be the fear of just getting people ahead of dementia and other chronic diseases living, you know, decades more isn't what we're after here. And I think uh, we're totally concordant on that. Um, and, and there's no evidence that it can be done truthfully. I mean, if you if you look at Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia, such as vascular dementia, I mean, there's simply no evidence at this point in time that we have any tools to reverse those conditions once they've really taken hold. And I think that largely explains why the pharmacologic industry has failed. I mean, it's it, we're not. I'm not being histrionic when I say that. I mean, it's it's been an abject failure um, to suggest anything otherwise. Um, and, and again, that suggests that if we're going to do anything about the rising incidence of dementia, it's got to be at identifying the highest risk patients and taking the most significant preventive steps with respect to their metabolic health, exercise, sleep, uh, even aspects of stress management and mental and emotional health. I mean, all of these things factor in, um, but the time to act on them is long before mild cognitive impairment or MCI sets in. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that you hit on uh, so uh, eloquently, you know, over, overall, the whole book is really an erudite uh, approach, but the insulin resistance as a critical condition, which is thematic as to getting early to these yeah, and by the way, you know, all four of these major uh, uh, areas are the common threads get to that. And so you have used uh, continuous glucose monitoring. I don't know if you still do. And you have centered on this. And and you're aware that in, in the medical community, there's like a, a, a pre-diabetes is a myth. It's all it shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be recognized. It's, uh, um, you know, scaremongering. I mean, which is crazy. Can you sort out this? I mean, because it does seem like insulin resistance, and we're going to get into the GLP one drugs, um, is a is a big deal that's being largely ignored. 
Yeah, I, it's very interesting. I'm not I'm not sure where that's coming from because I actually think the data are quite unambiguous that even beyond or outside of the threshold of type 2 diabetes, which is currently defined by the hemoglobin A1C, historically about 15 years ago and prior it was defined by the oral glucose tolerance test. Um, but let's just use the modern day definition. So a line was drawn in the sand that said, if your hemoglobin A1C is 6.5% or higher, which for most people, but clearly not all people, corresponds to an average blood glucose of 140 milligrams per deciliter or higher. You now have this condition called type 2 diabetes. And presumably anybody with an IQ above about uh, you know 60 recognizes that indeed your, net, your risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, in addition to your risk of kidney disease and a whole bunch of other things goes up dramatically as a response to that. In fact, your all-cause mortality is up 40% when you have type 2 diabetes. Okay, let's put all that aside and assume anybody with half a brain agrees with that. Where I'm not sure I understand any disagreement is if you look at the data for what is the all-cause mortality of people with hemoglobin A1C below 6.5, it points to a monotonic decrease in risk as you go down from 6.5 to 5. In other words, having an average blood glucose of 100 milligrams per deciliter is better than having an average blood glucose of 110, which is better than 120, which is better than 130. And this is according to all-cause mortality data. It's also true that we have better outcomes for people who have and this is harder to demonstrate, but I think if you look at the type one diabetes data, you see that you have better outcomes with fewer spikes in glucose. So in other words, it's not just the average of blood glucose, but it's managing the shape of the glycemic curve. So where I've seen people push back is they will acknowledge if, if confronted with those data, they'll acknowledge it, but they'll, but they'll say that, hey, those data are based on hemoglobin A1C and not CGM to which I'll say, yeah, that's true. Those data were not captured with CGM. But to me, it's a relatively minor leap to say, if we know these things based on hemoglobin A1C to be true, it's very likely that they're going to be true based on capturing more accurate data with the continuous glucose monitor. So, you know, Eric, I'm not really sure what the hesitation is. If the hesitation is that we don't want payers to cover the cost of CGM for non-diabetics. You know, that, frankly, that's a policy question. I won't right. wade into right. that, right? I mean, again, my patients, most of them spend at least 30 days with a CGM, non-diabetic non patients, and they pay out of pocket. So really it's, you know, it's not costing the system anything. Um, and it's really not that expensive relative to the cost of missing out on that information. And for many and patients, it becomes a tool that they'll use for more than 30 days. And they learn certain foods to avoid because of significant spikes and, and other it, things like that? It's not just the food, although that's the most obvious thing that one learns. But I think what most people find more interesting, and certainly I did, and I started wearing a CGM in 2015, um, what most people learn is the effect of sleep, the effect of exercise, and the effect of stress, and how much those things change uh, glucose control. So, you know, I was just talking with a patient last week, and they were saying, and it's sort of funny because they're telling me this, and of course, I already know the answer, but I love hearing them come to this conclusion rather than me telling them. 
And the patient was saying, boy, what a difference it's making if I have a bad night of sleep versus a good night of sleep. Mm. With a really good night of sleep, I can get away with eating X, Y, and Z, and my glucose numbers are well within the parameters we've set for optimal. And if I sleep two hours less, I just have, you know, I get home too late, I wake up, something goes wrong. All of that goes out the window. Yeah. My glucose is high overnight. I wake up with high glucose and my glucose tolerance is, is minimized. And I know for me personally, that was a huge insight that, that, you know, leads me to be very thoughtful about food choices with and without all of the other variables in my life in order. Yeah, you know, I think that's actually a project we're working on right now, the multimodal AI interactions between stress, sleep, uh, foods, and all these things that change glucose spikes. And some people, of course, as you know, they don't spike to anything. Um, and then, of course, uh, many others, perhaps the majority, have some some or even very significant spikes. Now, one of the other things I learned um which is not the kind of the accepted uh, uh, recommendation is about protein. You wrote about how one gram of protein per body weight or 130 grams um, or more. Uh, that's, that's one thing I just want to commend you about there is that the medical community doesn't pay enough attention to nutrition. You obviously have zoomed in on this quite a bit, but tell us a little bit more about the, the protein story. Well, I mean, I think, unfortunately, the the RDA, the recommended um, dietary allowance, is sort of addressing the wrong question, right? It's a relevant question. It's just not a relevant question today. It was a relevant question in an era of food scarcity, right? So if we, when we think back to, you know, the 1940s and the 1950s or during the war, you know, when food was not as abundant as it is today, and one was really thinking, what is the minimum effective dose? What's the minimum amount of protein I would need to, you know, survive? Yeah, then I think you're more, you know, you're closer to that one gram per kilogram of body weight. Um, but if you if you look at the data more carefully and you ask the question, okay, imagine we're coming from a world that's not resource constrained, which it clearly isn't today. We have unlimited access to energy. It's never been cheaper. By energy, I mean food. Then the question is, well, what's the optimal amount? And you see that the answer is somewhere between 1.4 and 2 grams per kilo of body weight. So it, it's potentially twice as much as we've historically told people. And that you might say, well, Peter, that's a really big range, 1.4 to 2. How do you anchor in on where it needs to be? And again, I think this is where medicine 3.0 can lend a hand, right? And it depends on a lot of things. It depends on your activity level. It depends on how much you're breaking down muscle on mm -hmm. a daily basis, how mm -hmm. active you are. It also depends on how old you are. So the older you get, the more anabolic resistance you have, meaning the more difficult it is to assimilate amino acids in muscle protein synthesis, and therefore the more of them you need. It also depends on the quality of those amino acids. So if a person is eating a vegetarian diet and they have to get all of their amino acids from plants, they're going to have a harder time reaching the thresholds for leucine, lysine, methionine, which would be some of the most important amino acids. And they're probably gonna to have to eat more total protein to hit their numbers. So all of these things factor in. And I would say the final thing that we look at is the overall balance of energy in the patient. So you, you heard me 
talk about it. You probably read that. I, I, I distinguish between people who are overnourished, undernourished, adequately muscled and under muscled. And that creates kind of a two by two that allows you to think about what do we need to do with energy restriction? And if a person is adequately muscled and overnourished, which by the way is you know a reasonable subset of the population, then you can be a little bit more forgiving on allowing yourself to be at the lower end of that protein intake because the goal is first and foremost to reduce total energy intake. Conversely, if a person is under-muscled and maybe even adequately nourished, you're going to push them to higher levels of protein intake. So, you know, it, it's clearly an art more than it is a science, but the science is the piece that says muscle mass matters tremendously. Frailty is an enormous contributor, not just to mortality, but much more importantly, to morbidity in an aging population. And therefore, everything must be done to minimize frailty and sarcopenia. Well, you convinced me that was compelling in the book. And I helped my protein intake on the basis of that of your work there. The uh, other thing, of course, uh, before I get some into some questions and on, on um, uh, the grounds, is about exercise. You're an exercise fanatic. I don't know. Are you still exercising three or four hours a day? No, I probably average two hours a day. That's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. That's a little more than the average, I guess, though, right? Probably, yes. But it's great that you can do it and that you're committed to it. Now, um, one of the uh, drugs that is out there as to potentially uh, improving longevity, which it has in every animal species tested, is rapamycin, which you've acknowledged, of course, could be trouble because of immune suppression. But it's a candidate drug. Uh, even we're trying to look at it potentially for long COVID. Uh, it has a lot of uh, good for mitochondrial function as well as potentially for people with activated immune systems. But what do you think about um, I guess you take rapamycin and advocate I do. for patients. Yeah. Um, I mean, probably 5% of our patients take it. So it's, you know, I wouldn't say that uh, we certainly don't use it in the way we would use, say, lipid lowering drugs, where we have a very strong position that's that's uh, uh, much more clear. But, um, you know, look, I, rapamycin is a drug I've been studying for uh, probably 10 years now, maybe, maybe a little over 10 years, actually. Um, and... Look, I think it's, um, as you said, it's the most successful molecule that's ever been tested from a gyro per, uh, protective perspective in, in the field of science and medicine. So there is no other molecule that has so repeatedly demonstrated a survival advantage across all species. And these are, you know, again, it's important to understand this is all species that span a billion years of evolution. So if you go back and look at the effect of mTOR inhibition on yeast, on worms, on flies, and of course, more recently on all types of mammals and also important models of mammals. So not just like the B6 mouse, but some of the more representative mouse models. Of course, Matt Caberlin is now testing this in companion dogs. We've got some small primate studies. Um, all of these things are basically showing the exact same effect. Um, Couple that with the fact that we have human data using rapalogs dosed intermittently. So this is a very different dosing schedule than what is used for the immunosuppressive doses, for example, in transplant patients. And we see the opposite. Now we see immune enhancement. And that's why in the book, I make a point of saying 
we've historically thought of rapamycin as an immune inhibitor, we're probably better off thinking of it as an immune modulator. So it can be an inhibitor, but it can be an enhancer. And probably one of the most interesting near-term applications for rapamycin might be indeed uh, B-cell enhancement in uh, elderly patients, which is the population that's already been studied in. So the 2014 paper with Clickstein, uh, led by Joan Manick, demonstrated that just a six or eight week course of intermittent rapamycin followed by a washout was enough to boost immune response to a flu vaccine. Um, so these are these are very interesting studies. And of course, um, it's unfortunate we're never going to get a, a hard outcome study of rapamycin in humans uh, because it would take too long and it's never right, going to right. be done. So right. I think are the best we're going to get are better and better animal models that more closely approximate humans. For example, in the probably companion dogs would be as good as it's going to get there. The readout of that study will be 2026. And then the best thing we'll expect to see in humans are biomarker studies. Now, the problem is today we don't have really good biomarkers. Rich Miller at the University of Michigan has done some incredible work here identifying a subset of biomarkers from the ITP mice. I would love to see that work replicated in humans and first begin with, hey, are we even able to measure these well in humans? And are, are we able to perturb them predictably without too much biologic noise. And if we can do those things, then it starts to get very interesting. But th but Eric, that's my belief as to how we will bridge the gap between where we are now, which is clearly rapamycin works for every creature, to where what would be very interesting to know is, does it therefore work in humans? Now, and that's not really a guarantee. Yeah, interesting how that, how that plays out because it has real potential. And also, of course, as you well know, it's about a dose story too. It's low doses versus, you know, higher doses. And your point about immunomodulation is really important. The next thing I want to ask you about was the total body MRI. Um, as you know, that's become there's many more you know, startup companies are advocating these, and you know that you could get total body MRIs to prevent. Uh, that's something I know you're supportive of, but also obviously there's concerns about rabbit hole incidental findings. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I'll take a step back from it and talk more broadly just about cancer screening, because of course, whole body MRI is simply one tool one would use for cancer screening. And, and this is an area where I've had a real pendulum swing in the last six or seven years. So you know, I think in my training, you know, I trained in surgery. And so, you know, going back 15, 20 years, my my view was that cancer aggressive cancer screening was really only giving us lead time bias, and I really wasn't convinced that it was saving lives. Um, but the truth of it is, I didn't really look closely enough at the data, and I and I think if you look at the data more closely, what you'll realize is that it really does matter how many cancer cells you have in the body when you treat a patient, mm -hmm. and I think that the burden of disease matters. And I, I really think that that was the big change in my perspective. Um, and the best evidence for this, and I cite two examples in the book, which I think are two of the largest examples, is when you contrast the effect of treating patients with metastatic cancer versus treating patients in the adjuvant setting for the same cancer with the same drug. So just for the listeners, to make sense of that. Adjuvant therapy is what you give a patient after you've surgically removed 
the existing tumor. And you give it because you know there are still cells in the body. So when a patient has uh, a colorectal cancer and the surgeon removes the piece of the colon with the cancer and the piece of the uh, lymph nodes that are attached to it and there's cancer there, but the CT scan demonstrates that at least grossly to the eye, there's no other cancer. So the liver, the lungs, the bones, everything is clean. What do you do with that patient? Well, you know that if you don't treat that patient, you know, 60, 70, 80% of those patients, cancer will come back. Yeah. But we know that if you give those patients, you know, the full Fox regimen and comparable regimens with comparable drugs, at least half of them will be cured. So that's pretty interesting. Now, what happens in the case where you go and you take the colon out and now the patient has metastatic disease all over their body? Well, it turns out you're gonna give them the exact same chemotherapy, but how many of those patients will survive? Zero. Zero of those patients will survive tragically. Every one of those patients will die from their disease today. And so what that tells us, and by the way, we can do the same exercise with breast cancer. We, so, so you can take the most common cancers and it's always the same situation. Even when you're using the same drugs, we have far better success treating adjuvant uh, in the adjuvant setting than we do in the metastatic setting. And I've discussed this with many oncologists and they all sort of point back to the same argument, which is the more cancer cells you have, the higher the probability that some of those cells are going to find escape mechanisms to the drugs. They're simply going to be able to mutate their way out of the drug. And therefore, when you're treating a billion cells, which is my, maybe what you're treating in the adjuvant setting, you have a better chance at squashing the cancer than when you're treating tens of billions or hundreds of billions of cells in the metastatic setting. So with all of that said, if the most important tool to, you know, not succumbing to cancer is reducing the probability of getting cancer, which it clearly is. And we could talk about, you know, what are the important steps there beyond the obvious, like not smoking. I would say the second most important thing is if you do get cancer, and unfortunately, I still believe that you can do everything right and still get cancer. There's sure. so much we just don't understand about this disease in a way that you know, we understand so much more about cardiovascular disease, but when it comes to cancer, I think Bert Vogelstein was absolutely correct when he said, bad luck just plays an enormous role. And of course I'm paraphrasing, but that's a very controversial paper he wrote many years ago that, that I, I believe is correct. So we have to be able to find it early. Okay, so with all that said, what are the tools we have to detect cancer early? Let's put aside all of them and just talk about the MRI because we could talk about colonoscopy, we can talk about you know liquid biopsies, which you might want to talk about. But when it comes to the MRI, why has it taken hold as a, 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 a pan screen of choice? I think there's a couple of reasons, but the most important is it's not invasive and it has no radiation. So there's no physical harm from the test and that's not true for a lot of other screens, right? Mm -hmm. A CT scan comes with an enormous amount of radiation if you're going to do whole body. A whole body CT scan is probably even today 25 to 30 millisieverts, which would be an unacceptable amount of radiation for screening. Um, and of course, there are certain types of screening that are very important, but they come with risk like colonoscopy. And MRI wouldn't displace that, but we take a slightly more measured approach to it. Whereas anybody can go and get this MRI if they're willing to pay I don't know what the going rate is today. It's one to $2,000 probably for a whole body MRI. And obviously that's out of pocket. 
So let's get to your question now, which is, what are the what are, what what are the advantages of doing this? What are the blind spots of doing this? And what are the downspots? Well, I I I'll tell you. This is what I say to every one of my patients. Every one of my patients. Uh, here's a 10 minute soliloquy that I give on sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, and pretest probability. In fact, I've made a video out of it that I usually have them watch first, and then we talk about it so that they really, really get it. But what I want everybody to understand is every screening test has an intrinsic sensitivity and specificity, and then your pretest probability is what determines the positive and predictive value. And I say, here's the deal with MRI. It's a very, very high sensitivity test. One of the highest sensitivity tests we have, meaning if you have one of the cancers it's capable of detecting, so not a luminal cancer in an early stage, but if you have one of the cancers it's capable of detecting, it's very likely to detect it. Conversely, it has one of the lowest specificities of any test we can do. What that means in English is it's very bad at distinguishing between cancer and non-cancer in terms like, it's gonna cause a lot of false positives. So then I show them, here is your pretest probability of having cancer, and we have a little model, and I plug in the sensitivity and the specificity. And by the way, we can improve the specificity greatly using diffusion-weighted imaging with background subtraction. So I, I actually don't advocate for off-the-shelf MRI scanning. Mm -hmm because they don't use DWI with background subtraction and therefore the specificity is very low. Mm -hmm. So we can really increase the specificity. It's still lower than you would like using diffusion-weighted imaging with background subtraction. By the way, that's what makes, for example, multi-parametric MRI for the prostate such a valuable tool. And then I say, look, the bottom line is the, the positive predictive value of this test is still 10 to 20%. That means in English, if there is a positive finding, it is much more likely to not be cancer than to be cancer. And we are going to be on a little bit of a goose chase going after it. And where MRIs are especially weak is in glandular tissue. This is where, this is their Achilles heel. All right. And so is there a likelihood we're going to see a thyroid nodule that is totally irrelevant? Yes. And I say in, in our experience, I would say one in four patients who undergoes a whole body MRI, maybe one in five, ends up needing to do a follow-up study like a thyroid ultrasound just to chase something down. Or at a minimum, they need to do another scan a year later to follow something that is almost assuredly nothing like an adrenal adenoma, but just to make sure it's not growing. All right. And based on that, Eric, about 10 to 20% of my patients just elect not to do it. They're like, you know, that's not for me. And I say, great, like know thyself. Um, if it's for you, I want you to go in eyes wide open. And if it's not for you, I want you to, you know, know that you're not doing it and why you're not doing it. But um, yeah. I, I think that the reality of it is, you know, and where you and I probably share a concern is, I think it's very dangerous for patients to go into this without an advocate. Yeah. And I think, so what I don't, what I, what I don't fancy is the idea of patients who just go into this without a physician who's there to be able to do with them what we can do with our patients, which is help them make a very informed decision. And just as importantly, walk them through the morass of follow-up should an incidentaloma show up. Yeah. I think the way you prep 
the patients who go for it is so critical because, you know, I have so many patients I know you have who have had to go through all these extra tests, biopsies and whatnot, and, you know, came out everything negative, but the anxiety they went through uh, was profound. Uh, so yep. that's great how you have you positioned it. Um, and maybe in the future, the multi-cancer early detection test is whether it's through methylation or through fragmentation or whatever will be the first test. And then the MRI would be, where is it and what's going on? Because as you pointed out aptly, the number of cells and pre-spread is so critical. And once it's already visible on a scan, it's it's a lot bigger than what you might be able to pick up through um, the uh, cell-free uh, plasma tumor DNA. So one last thing I want to ask you about, you didn't write much on the GLP-1 drugs, um, Munjaro and Wagovi, and they're obviously, you know, I don't know if there's ever seen a drug class like this, Peter, ever. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously right now it's not diabetes, it's obesity, but where do you think this is headed? Because um, as you probably saw, there were people even with early type 1 diabetes where it got rid of their insulin requirement, small series, but still, very intriguing, thin people, right? Um, wh where do you see this headed? Yeah, I don't think I wrote at all about this in the book, truthfully, although I've written and done many podcasts on it since 2020, um, uh, or probably since 21 was the first time I did a podcast on it. And I, so I've been following it very closely. And I think like any doctor, I'm constantly being inundated by patient requests to go on it. Um, and it's mostly to manage weight. I mean, there's nobody that's coming to me saying, I'm not happy with my insulin resistance. Please put me on Manjaro. It's, I want to lose 10 pounds. Please put me on Manjaro. Um, by the way, I'm sure you've seen this, but there's now a triple receptor, right? So yes. there's now uh, GLP-1, uh, GIP and then glucagon. And that, right. that phase two looked even more dramatic oh, yeah. than the phase two and phase three of both trisepatide and semaglutide. So it's almost become a Saturday Night Live skit at this point, where at some point there'll be a quad receptor drug that will take, will, you know, reduce your weight to zero. Like you'll, you'll, you'll violate, you know, the relativity, you'll, you'll violate the principle of conservation of mass at some point. So um, I won't lie. I do have a couple of concerns, Eric. So we've had a number of patients on these drugs and for, in all of our patients, we monitor overnight heart rate and HRV. Um, we do it because it's so easy to do. Every one of our patients has some wearable. They're always wearing a whoop or a Fitbit or something like that. And without exception, every single patient who is on one of these drugs, we have yet to see an exception has an increase in their overnight heart rate of eight to 12 beats per minute. Mm, mm. That's, I hadn't heard that. I hadn't seen and it. I mean, it's interesting. Take, the, the GI yeah, side effects, but hadn't seen the cardiovascular, yeah. And it goes away when you're off drug. Mm. It takes a while. It takes a couple of weeks to go away, depending on how long you've been on the drug, but it, it, it your, your heart rate will return to normal off drug. And I haven't, I haven't looked in a few months, but I haven't seen an explanation as for why that's the case, but it gives me pause Yeah, because I can't think of a physiologic scenario that would increase your resting heart rate by 10 beats per minute as a positive thing. 
Now, well, that, that doesn't mean it's not a good idea for some people, right? So right. in other words, there's clearly benefits to this drug in some populations. But I guess my reaction is, if you're a person who just needs to lose 10 pounds, Crazy. I'm not convinced that the risk is worth it um, relative to the reward. Well, and to your point there is not just the fact that you're getting this untoward effect, uh, at least we would deduce it's untoward, but that these people who are losing more than 10 pounds, losing 50, 60, there are, there's no way to get off these drugs that have been mapped out. So That's whatever right. the effects are, and the one I thought you would really zoom in on knowing for at least uh, what you've written about is the muscle mass, the the, the fact that yeah. there's sarcopenia and bone density loss from these drugs, and especially in people that are taking it long term. Are you concerned about that? We, we absolutely are. And we don't put patients on them without a DEXA scan so that if for nothing else, we can demonstrate to them at some point when enough is enough. Um, we're not seeing, um, and I'm not saying it's not possible, but I'm just saying you probably have to be much more deliberate about it. We're not seeing what I would consider an ideal loss of body weight either. So an ideal loss of body weight is generally regarded uh, as less than 25% of the loss is lean mass, right? So if a person loses 50 pounds, less than 12 and a half of those pounds should be lean mass. That would be really, really ideal. When we see people lose 40 pounds, i.e. 10 of which should be 10 or less should be lean, we'll easily see it 50, be 50-50. Right, right. That's a very, very common finding. So that person paradoxically is increasing their percent body fat um, as they're losing weight, assuming they started out at, you know, 35 or 40 percent body fat they're actually getting slightly higher in body fat percent um so again i i still think that they're on balance people are getting metabolically healthier when they do this in the short run um but i i'd love to see better data i don't know why i'm not jumping up and down with joy i know that the rest of the world is uh so i don't i don't, I don't know why I, i'm you know i'm not trying to be contrarian about it but i I, I do have my reservations well, about yeah. their pan use. I have, I share those, especially since we don't have a way to get people off. If people could, and, and maintain their weight or yeah. Else. Yeah. that, I think because these side effects are notable and even perhaps more than is generally recognized as you're bringing up, you know, the concern here is without a uh, exit ramp, we got a lot of potential lurking trouble uh, there. Well, this has been uh, terrific to review the, a lot of the great uh, work you did in the book. Some of my questions that I when I that I came to when I read it, saying what did about what is he saying about this or that? But overall, um, you know, it's just a great resource for people. It's an inspiration for people to take better care of their health. Maybe they they don't want to get into every bit of the things that you've written about, but you certainly covered the bases uh, really well as well as anyone ever has. So. It's great work, Peter. Thanks so much for, for joining today. Thanks very much for having me, Eric. And thanks for, for taking the time to read the book and comment on it.